Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast of our sermons here at City Beautiful Church. Um, this past week, the unfortunately, the recording was corrupted, so uh, I'm sitting here in my home office on a Wednesday afternoon, um, which I've mentioned before when I've had to do this, I actually kind of love because I get almost a, a second shot at um, going through my sermon and, and God willing, uh, perhaps it's a little bit more coherent than it was on Sunday. Uh, but thank you all for uh, continuing to tune in. We're in this bigger series right now called Eureka, where we're going through the Old Testament looking for evidence of Jesus. And we're all familiar with uh, prophecy, you know, these words uh, from folks in the Old Testament um, declaring what it is that God is doing in order to rescue the world um, in anticipation of his coming Messiah. But we're looking at um, slightly different angles in this series. We're looking at Christophanies, which are evidence of the pre-incarnate Christ present in the Old Testament scriptures. And we're also looking at typologies, which are um, characters or events in the Old Testament that uh, kind of point down the road to Christ being the fulfillment of what we see in partiality in the Old Testament. Uh, so I began this Sunday by talking about Rorschach tests. Many of you will be familiar with this. It's a kind of mirrored inkblot image. And in 1921, uh, a Swiss psychologist by the name of Hermann Rorschach developed these inkblots to test uh, personality disorders. He was really looking for a way of detecting um, sociopathy, um, psychopathy, that sort of thing. Um, because what essentially his theory was, and it still is in use today, is that we tend to project meaning from our personal experience onto neutral images. So these images might evoke in us a deep emotional response, and we see something um, that isn't inherently there, um, that shows us what it is that we're actually working through deep within ourselves based out of our experiences. And I think that that's uh, such an interesting way uh, to consider how we might approach Scripture that so often um, we tend to project our assumptions based on our experiences onto God. And that a lot of times what we think about God often reveals more about our disposition than it does about who God actually is. And I think that that is so helpful when we come to look at the really difficult passages in Scripture, um, not only of violence in the Old Testament, but specifically the violent portrayals of God. But I believe that the God of the Old Testament accommodates these violent tendencies that we have in our fallen humanity, but he puts them to death through Jesus on the cross. And I think this is really important to talk about because one of the biggest reasons that people give up on God or Christianity um, is the violence in the Old Testament. Or perhaps um, you remain faithful to Jesus, but you just don't know what to do with the Bible. And so a lot of people tragically avoid the Bible. And part of what we're trying to do in this series is to redeem our reading of the Bible in a more faithful way, to allow the Bible to do what it's here to do, which is to point us to Jesus. And one of the struggles that we have is that eventually we have to contend with these violent portrayals of God. 
And what we find often is either we're given explanations that maintain the integrity of these stories and these portrayals in the Old Testament that honestly make God seem schizophrenic between the Old Testament and the New. And we don't know how to reconcile uh, the Yahweh God of Israel um, with the God revealed in Jesus. Um, But my proposal today would be, if I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, um, that God does not change, that in fact, perhaps it's our understanding of God that changes. And I think this is the inherent value of this idea we've been talking about of progressive revelation of God through the scriptures, that as the story progresses, humanity through their interactions with God are understanding more and more of God's true nature and true character that culminates in the person of Jesus. Um, But that has gone askew for many of us and Sometimes these re-readings of the violent portrayals of God feel like this newfangled idea to try to soften the scriptures or to try to soften what God is like. And uh, we're said, no, 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 we have to let the scriptures reveal to us who God truly is. And, um, and we start to kind of have to jump through these apologetic hoops in order to make sense of something that Uh, often feels rather offensive to us on a deeper level. The interesting thing to me is that the early church, the first several centuries, was actually relatively united in this radical view that Jesus redeems the violence of the Old Testament, the violent portrayals of God and the violent tendencies of humanity. So here's just a couple quotes to give you an example. Um, There was Novacian, who was uh, a theologian, who lived from about 200 to 258 AD. And he said, God's revelation had to be fitted to the Israelites' state of belief. The Israelites viewed God not as God was, but as the people were able to understand. God, therefore, is not mediocre, but the people's understanding is mediocre. God is not limited, but the intellectual capacity of the people's mind is limited. And another uh, early theologian, Gregory of Nazanius, in 329 to about 390 AD, so uh, you know, a century later, he said that God beguiled his people into the gospel by gradual changes, which I absolutely love, um, that God beguiled his people, um, which really kind of comes back to this main point that I'm making, that God accommodates our violent tendencies and our violent assumptions that if if this is the way that we are, then probably God is just like that on a bigger level, but that God works in that narrative to gradually weed out of us these false pagan ideas of what God is like to prepare us to receive Jesus as his full revelation. So what changed? Why, if the early church was relatively unified in this radical view of Jesus redeeming the violence of the Old Testament, What happened? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, So in about 13 or 313 AD, Emperor Constantine, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, um, had this vision uh, kind of on the advent of a battle, supposedly. As legend goes, in this vision, he looks up into the sky and he sees a cross shining down from heaven and he takes it as a sign that God is on his side and that he is going to win 
because Jesus is supporting his military campaign. And so he has all of his soldiers paint these crosses on their shields. They go in, sure enough, they conquer the opposing force and they have victory. And uh, right after this, again, according to legend, Constantine therefore declares Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire, which is terribly ironic because in the centuries preceding, Christians were being persecuted for not being in step with the empire, that we, that we know that the emperor was considered to be a god worthy of worship. And it was the early Christians who said, no, there is only one god, and it is the god that's revealed in Jesus. And the reason that Constantine did this is that state religion would now justify his right to rule. But one of the things that we see throughout history is that empires need this conquering God motif in order to maintain power. Number one, it makes the leaders godlike that they have this unique um, uh, relationship and authority that comes directly from God. And number two, it justifies the state's use of the sword to rule. And so it's in the best interests if you're building an empire to have a God that's on your side and justifies you using violence. And so it upholds a lot of these um, violent images from the Old Testament of a conquering God in order to say, we're, God is on our side, we're on his side, whatever we do is being justified. And so we've seen that for a huge part of, uh, of history in what we call Christendom, which is essentially using the Christian faith to prop up these empirical notions of power and bringing peace through force or strength. So what I want to do today is just to try to untangle that and bring us back to what I believe is actually a far more faithful and traditional view of these violent portrayals of God. Because it doesn't mean that we're discounting the Old Testament images. That's not the answer. It's not to just ignore these stories. But we enter into these stories looking for how Christ fulfills or redeems those images of God. Is there a deeper revelation of God's heart for humanity than what we find on the surface? That the Israelites are writing down these stories. They're engaging with Yahweh in these limited, mediocre ways that we kind of bring those to the cross and we allow the lens of the cross to show us what's actually happening there. So that brings us um, to the story of Abraham, who's considered the father of our faith and of the Islamic faith and the Jewish faith. And, you know, it's interesting to recognize, just as it's revolutionary to realize, oh my goodness, Jesus was a Jew, um, Abraham was not. Abraham was a pagan. So what we've been looking at in this series up until this point is Genesis 1 through 11 are kind of um, Israel's statement of intent, that our God is not like the other gods. And the story starts to shift in Genesis 12 to focus in on one man and through that man, the family through which God is going to rescue the whole world. And so Abraham uh, is uh, just a guy kind of living his life, going about his thing with his flocks and his family and his servants and whatnot. And this disembodied voice of Yahweh comes to him and makes this very strange promise and says, I'm going to bless you. And through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations. And I need you to go where I'm going to show you. So God plucks Abraham out of this polytheistic world and sets him on this trajectory to begin to understand what kind of God 
he is. Now, the strange thing about this promise that God makes to Abraham is that Abraham is already very old and his wife, Sarah, is barren. And so they automatically begin to question, well, how are you going to do this? Like, Sarah can't have any children. We're too old in any way. And God asks them to trust him. And if you know the story, you know that time continues to go on. They become more and more desperate, wondering how on earth is God going to do this? And then they eventually take matters into their own hands. And Abraham, uh, Sarah's uh, maidservant, is offered to Abraham to say, well, if you have a child with Hagar, uh, the maidservant, then perhaps that's basically the same thing of us making God's promise uh, come to fruition. So Abraham and Hagar have Ishmael. Um, God is absolutely heartbroken that they decided to take matters into their own hands, and he rebukes them for it, um, although he does protect Hagar and he protects Ishmael, which is a wonderful story in and of itself. Um, but he asks them to trust him, and they keep waiting. So years later, Finally, Sarah gives birth to their son, Isaac. Um, It says in the scriptures that she was 90 years old at this time. And so here is this miracle child that is the promise of God being fulfilled in the most remarkable ways. And so when we jump in to the story here in Genesis 22, Isaac is probably preteen, early teen, maybe 13 years old or so. And um, God is going to ask Abraham to do something quite radical. So this is uh, Genesis 22 verses 1 to 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there was a thicket in it. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through you, your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Perhaps as I'm reading this, you're already beginning to notice some of the parallels between the story of Abraham and Isaac and the story of Jesus, specifically in Jesus's crucifixion. First off, we see this repeated motif, your son, your only son, or the more uh, kind of accurate translation is your only begotten son, which is a phrase that we used to speak of Jesus as the only begotten son of God. Um, but we see all these other parallels. It meant the story mentions that the father loves the son, and then they leave home, and the, the son carries the wood up the mountainside. They go up onto this mountain, and the father does not withhold the son, but is faithful until the very end. So we see in this, it's a type, it's a, it's a signpost that's pointing in limited ways to, to the story of Jesus, where there it will be revealed what is actually going on here, like that Jesus' story is the full representation of God. And so it's a really amazing parallel when you begin to see all of these little elements that are echoed and fulfilled in the story of Jesus on Mount Calvary. And indeed, some scholars think that Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary may be uh, one in the same. But that doesn't answer perhaps some of the, the bigger, deeper, more horrifying aspects of this story. I mean, this story should in some ways, make us shudder. Indeed, I would say if you, if you don't have some sort of emotional response to this story, I think you might be kind of missing the humanity present here. That there is something here that we should be really disturbed by. And a lot of times, the way that the story has been presented to us, we kind of let God off the hook. And we marvel at Abraham um, and we just hope the best for Isaac at the end. So how do we find the true heart of God revealed in Jesus in this very difficult story? So follow with me here. This is what I believe is so important for this story, that Yahweh put Abraham in a situation to show what he was not, which is a God like all the others that were obsessed with blood sacrifice. So in the ancient Near East, child sacrifice was how people appeased their gods when there was especially egregious sin and mere animal sacrifices weren't good enough. Um, many religions insisted that we uh, sacrifice the, the purest, most valuable thing we have in children to kind of cure that God's bloodlust that demands somebody has to pay for the sins of the people. And like I said, Abraham was a, was a pagan from the land called Ur. And so for him, child sacrifice would have been a very normal idea. It would have been what is to be expected. And so when God asks this of him, and we don't get any emotional context from the story necessarily, we can believe that that's got to be going on in the back of Abraham's mind. Like, 
okay, well, this is a thing that gods expect when there's real sin, like egregious sin that needs to be paid for. Somebody's got to pay for it. Somebody has to die. And the most profound thing that can be asked of me is this child. And you especially imagine that for for Abraham, where this child is truly miraculous and seems to be the fulfillment of the promise that Yahweh had given to him and to his wife, Sarah. But I think when we kind of step back a little bit, we, we can actually see this through a different lens. Because God has already at one point taken Abraham to the emotional edge of his, his own reasoning and assumptions of what God is like uh, in, the, in the long waiting to bring Isaac into the world. And that was the challenge to Abraham and Sarah that as the years and decades went by and they still didn't have a child, they were beginning to doubt more and more that God was really going to do what God said God was going to do. Um, and indeed, in the story of Hagar and Ishmael, we see they, that they try to make it happen by their own means. And so I think that, that that kind of sets us up to understand here, perhaps Yahweh is taking Abraham right to the very limits of his understanding of what a God is like or what a God is going to ask of him in order to take him right from the brink and pivot him around and say, look, this is not the kind of God that I am. And we see this if you kind of pick up the thread of sacrifice throughout um, the scriptures, that sacrifice in general was a very common motif in the ancient Near East. Everybody did it. And it was all about appeasing gods and their demand for payment for sins. And that was what justice looks like. But Yahweh enters into that world and takes a people and he begins to change the meaning of sacrifice. There's another story um, with Yahweh and Abraham where Yahweh asks him to, to make a sacrifice in a particular way of splitting these animals in half. But then Yahweh passes through the middle of, um, in the middle of the sacrifices, not to say, I want these to, to kind of gobble up and satisfy my bloodlust. But Yahweh is actually saying, if I'm not faithful to my half of this promise that I'm making to you, to my covenant, may this be what happens to me. And so when we begin to follow that narrative of sacrifice in the Old Testament, we begin to recognize that God takes a familiar image of sacrifice for sin and to appease the angry gods He begins to change the meaning of that sacrifice and he works it out over generations. So as I've mentioned before, when we kind of get to the story of King David and David has this radical fall from grace where he lusts after Uriah's wife Bathsheba. He has Uriah killed so he can take her as his own. And then his friend, the priest Nathan calls him out for it. He writes in Psalm 51, "Um, I would give you a, a burnt sacrifice, but that's not what you desire. And we see in the latter prophets, they're all beginning to realize, well, maybe this isn't actually the heart of God. And again, we're forced to to step into some sort of rational decision. Is it that God has changed over time? That God did want those kinds of sacrifices and now he doesn't? Or is it that humanity had misunderstood the heart of God? And that God is willing to step into that misunderstanding, but to work through it um, to reveal what he is actually like. And so 
Again, when we follow that thread of sacrifice, we see these working it over generations. And finally, he ends that whole violent sacrificial narrative of appeasing his anger um, with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So the violent images of God died on the cross with Christ because this is a God who shows us in Jesus that he would rather die than strike down his enemies or demand blood payment for sins. And I think that really gets to what perhaps is the core sin for humanity is our misaligned view of God because we become like what we worship but we also project our corrupted hearts onto the things that we worship and onto these idols. Everything else flows from our misaligned view of God. And when we get that wrong, it affects how we see ourselves. It affects how we see other people. It affects how we see the world around us. And I think this story of Abraham and Isaac is kind of one of these pinnacle stories in the Old Testament that stand very high as almost as a way to anticipate the coming of Christ, but also to reinterpret so many of the things that we see in the Old Testament. Because what we see in like fulfilled in Jesus is that God redeems these violent commands of the Old Testament by himself becoming the sacrifice. Jesus, let me be very clear, Jesus on the cross is not a payment for sin in the sense that God demanded that somebody has to die, and so it became Jesus. I think that is actually a horrific theology that reinforces the pagan image of God, but that that Jesus on the cross is God on the cross. And to, and to see the story of Abraham and Isaac pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of the narrative is to see now the father and the son and the lamb are all one. So when Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, He's speaking prophetically that God does provide the lamb for the offering, but God lays himself on the altar for our sins of thinking less of him than who he truly is. Because God is as ugly, God allows himself to be seen as ugly as we will portray him, but God will reveal himself to be as beautiful as we allow him to show us that he truly is. And that brings us to the story of Jesus, that everything that Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection is to reveal the true heart of Father God. So just one example from the Sermon on the Mount. uh, In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus says this, You have heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know, last week we we got to worship with um, Tribe Orlando and Pastor Shav was speaking to us of 1 Corinthians 13 and how love is this, this concept that's so kind of broad and we take it for granted that we don't slow down to really examine what we're looking at. And in my community group last week, we were asking this question, who are the kinds of people that we find it hard to love, specifically within our own community, if we're going to localize it? And we ended up making a list of the kinds of people that we have a really hard time loving. We have a hard time loving needy people or entitled people. We have a hard time loving people who are complacent or unjust. We have a hard time uh, loving people that are weak 
or messy. And one of the things that we began to realize is we have a hard time with these people because honestly, they remind us that we might not be the ones that actually have it together. And so this, this theology of enemies develops in the, in the ministry of Jesus. And for me, an enemy is anyone who causes me to question who I think I am. So an enemy is someone who causes me to question who I think I am by their mere presence. And so I don't like to acknowledge weak people because maybe they make me recognize that I'm not exactly as kind or generous as I thought that I was. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he tacks onto it that you may be children of your father in heaven because children are to be pattered after the father. We are begotten of God, which means that we look like God. We sound like God. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And this is the key. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So Jesus's radical claim, if we are to trust him, is the father is perfect for loving his enemies, not smiting them. And that is a very big statement. But Jesus reveals that through his teaching, through his interactions with people. We see it all the time. We see where, you know, the disciples, like people are coming after them and they say, shall we call down fire from heaven? Because in their scriptures, they saw that happening all the time, that the prophets would call down this fire from heaven and Jesus rebukes them for it because that's not the true heart of the father. And so far from the cross being the payment of sin in the sense that God needed somebody to die to satiate his bloodlust. We see that on the cross, God defeats the powers of sin and death and violence by subverting them, that God absorbs all of our ugly views of him into himself, but he puts them to death in the grave. And then he rises again to show us that he is victorious over all of that ugliness, all that violence, all that sin. And maybe, just maybe, now this actually sounds like good news. That maybe God is far more beautiful than we have been led to believe. That God is far more beautiful than even the Israelites understood when they were writing their scriptures. And it doesn't mean that the Holy Scriptures are any less holy or divinely inspired or some of these words that we've talked about in this series. They had these radical encounters with God, but they were looking as in a mirror dimly lit. They could only see in partiality the heart of God, what we now see in fullness through Jesus. There's a wonderful 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and he said, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. Another way to say it, if we cannot say it about Jesus, we cannot say it about God. And the light of Christ shines down on these obscured images of God in the Old Testament to reveal the heart that was always present, but wasn't always fully glimpsed. We did not always know what God was like, but now we do. 
And that doesn't mean that we ignore these scriptures, but it means that we take upon ourselves the work to read them through the lens of the cross because we need those stories to give us those signposts pointing into the mist, pointing down the road to Christ as the fulfillment of everything that God is. So why does this matter? It matters because you and I, we're just like Israel. We have this mediocre view of God. We're still polytheistic in many ways. Our attention, our worship is being drawn into all these things that fall short of being truly godlike whether it's our worship of the nation, whether it's the, our worship of the, the almighty dollar, whether it's the worship of um, our own celebrity or uh, the idea of success. We are a polytheistic culture. And indeed, one of the things that I had pointed out is this, this kind of Christendom idea of, of leaders using God imagery in order to justify their actions. We see that all the time, even here in our own country. Um, that even last summer, um, when it came to moving our troops out of Afghanistan, our current president in passing used this language from the prophet Ezekiel that it says, when God says, who will go on my behalf? The American military says, here I am, send me. And no disrespect to our current president, but that is blasphemous because it takes these images of what God is like and it justifies the violent power of the nation in saying it's all basically the same thing. And so often we make God in our image to justify our violence, our bloodlust, our need for revenge. But the God revealed in Jesus on the cross cries out, enough, and sets us free from all of that. And so the work of liberation in the modern church is to rewire our brains to allow God to show us how beautiful and true he truly is. Now, does this erase every passage of scripture or reinterpret every passage of scripture conveniently that shows what seems to be a violent God commanding violent things? No, it doesn't. It's not that easy. The scriptures are complex and there's a lot happening there. But I hope that some of the things that we've spoken about today, specifically through the story of Abraham and Isaac, can at least give you some of those lenses to approach those portrayals of God in the Old Testament and to, to, to almost wrestle with the scriptures and to say, I'm not content to take the surface reading. I want to go deeper. I want to find the heart of the Father here and to trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us what is deeper, truer, and more beautiful. And so, my friends, um, that's all I have for you today. May you be blessed in this Lenten season. May it be a time for you where you clear space in your life, where you rid yourself of these addictions, where you identify these, these idols and these small gods that you have been worshiping at their altars, and that you clear space for God to reveal himself as he truly is to you. But also, that you take up in that space opportunities to look around, to see the poor, the helpless, the hopeless, those in need, and to divert those energies that would normally go to filling your selfish ego, uh, to serving the world, becoming the hands and feet of Christ. May we all seek uh, to reveal him more day by day in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Amen.
This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.